the book of Haggai is oftentimes overlooked. It's a minor prophet, and so we don't give it much thought. But this minor prophet has a major message, as we'll see today on Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse. Join us. From Grace Bible Church in Redwood City, this is Graceful Truth with our teacher and pastor, Steve Converse. Again, greetings in Christ and welcome to our broadcast. Pastor Steve Converse is continuing his survey of Haggai and today we find ourselves once again in chapter two, taking a look at the shaking of the earth that is spoken of here, as well as the smashing of man's kingdom, the servant of Jehovah and the signet of God's choosing. Now, these are all found here in the passage before us here in chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. Won't you join us for a look at Haggai? Here's Pastor Steve Converse with this edition of Graceful Truth. See, if you want to please our God and you don't have faith, you're going to have to please some other God. Because our God is the God who has to be pleased by faith. And if you're a child of God, this has to be one of the most you know, liberating experiences in the life of the child of God to realize that God can be trusted, that we can read his word. And when he says, here's how the church should operate, that we can apply that and say, okay, we're going to trust you, God, and we're going to do what you tell us to do. I mean, when you stop and you realize that the promises of God are for you, they're for me, and that we can live experientially in the light of that reality here while we're here on earth. I mean, that's amazing. There's an author by the name of Leonard Ravenhill, and he writes several different books. His father was a man who was not a great preacher or anything like that, but he realized his ministry for God, and he went to hospitals day by day, and he was an evangelist, just going around to different hospitals, talking to men, talking to women. Some of them were dying, some of them were ill, some of them were boys, girls, whatever, and he would just simply talk to them about his Savior. And he led hundreds and hundreds of to Christ through that little ministry that he had. And he was especially good at reaching out to Roman Catholics because that's from which he came. He came out of the Roman Catholic Church. The Lord saved him out of that. And one day he was talking to a man and the man turned around to him and the man objected and said, you know what, I prayed to God and God didn't hear me. And Ravenhill's father turned to him and said, look, if the king of England were to come into this room right now and I was to sit on his bed and I was to ask him for a five pound note because I am a subject of this nation. Do you think he would give it to me? And the man looked at him and said, well, I, I don't think he'd give it to you. And then Ravenhill's father went on to say, well, what about if the Prince of Wales came into this little room and asked the King of England for a five pound note? And the man answered, of course he would give it to him. That's his father. He's his son. And Ravenhill turned to that man and he said, yes, that's it, isn't it? It all has to do with the relationship. See, child of God today, whatever you're going through, whatever you feel your deficiency is in Christ or your spiritual life, whatever it is, I, I pray that you would realize the wealth that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And unlimited access to unlimited resources that we have through Christ. We have everything for we have Christ. Remember the nursery rhyme, Old Mother Hubbard? Well, and there's nothing in the cupboard, remember that? Well, there's a cupboard there and and all it takes is an arm of faith to reach up and that's what the book of hebrews is 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 teaching about over and over again reaching up to the cupboard of god and opening up and taking by faith and boldness what is our right to have in christ and that's what Haggai's message to zerubbabel 
is here. He's have faith in your God. And he goes on and he lists four reasons why. First of all, the first point is because he's going to shake the earth. Good thing I didn't preach this message last Sunday and then had the earthquake. Boy, you know. What was Zerubbabel worried about here? See, he was worried about his enemies. He was worried about everything going wrong again. Sure, they were out of captivity, but that was about it. Maybe you're in this place. Maybe you're a compulsive worrier. You're only out of the valley. You're only out of captivity. And you're worrying about the next one. It hasn't even come yet. He's standing there and God says, look, have faith in me because I'm going to shake the earth. Look at what he says in verse 20, 21. He says, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. I'll overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and their horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. See, God was telling this man, Zerubbabel, he was encouraging him, don't be afraid. One of these days, I'm going to bring an earthquake on the earth. That's speaking of what? God's divine judgment, right? That's ordained by God. And one day will come and will be, this judgment will be poured out over all the nations and they will suffer. Verse 22 says the overflow of God's anger. I mean, this, you can just see it. The Bible talks in other places about the cup of iniquity. It talks about the cup of the wrath of God and it's being filled up by the sins of men and eventually it's going to be poured out. I believe today we are definitely at this moment, perhaps in your personal life, Maybe there's men sinning against you, inflicting, opposing you, whatever it might be. It's filling up by the second. And one day, when it's full to overflowing, God's wrath, it says, will overflow the cup and hit the enemy. I mean, that must have meant something to Zerubbabel. In verse 21, some commentators believe that he's referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. Back in Genesis chapter 19, verses 23 and 20, we see there the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were defiling themselves, men with men, homosexuality. See, and that's what we focus on. That's the sin we focus on. But, you know, the primary sin of Sodom, if you, if you search the word of God, you'll find out the primary sin was really pride. It was really pride. Saying, we're going to live like we're going to live, and we don't care what you say, God. It says, the sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord reigned upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. Why did he do that? You think, man, that's, that's a little impatient God. The world comes along and says, oh, that's the loving God you're talking about. Yeah, I don't think I want to know him. In Genesis 18, 20, it says, And the Lord said, Because of the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah, and because it's great, and because their sin is very grievous. See, God was punishing their sin. Their cup of iniquity, his cup of wrath, had filled up to overflowing, and then it poured out on them. God's going to shake the earth in a way that he's never done it before. You think this was bad over in Japan? That's nothing. That's nothing. I mean, I was watching video of these waves come into Santa Cruz Harbor. I mean, you know, this is, you know, kind of a little wave. Can you imagine if that wave was 20, 30 feet high? What devastation would have been left in its path? And he said he's going to do it in a way that he's never done it before. I mean, God help anyone who's left down here to face it. What that tells me is that sin either ends up on the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary, or you know what? You have to pay for it in hell. There's only two options. Christ either bears your sin away on the cross, you have faith in his cross, and you'll never have to face torment in hell, a very real place, or if you don't choose that, then you do end up in hell. But sin has to be dealt with, beloved, one way or another. I want to ask you this morning, how has your sin been dealt with? Are you sure that your sin has been nailed to the cross of Christ? Are you positive? 
Because let me tell you this morning, unless you're 100% sure, I can honestly say, I'm sure that you will pay for it in hell. There's no 98%. There's no 99%. Verse 22 is talking about the exodus from Edith. I'll overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'll destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. And here it is. He says, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride in them. Remember when they were coming out of Egypt? Those people were armed to the teeth. What God's people have? Nothing. Nothing. Not a thing. They didn't even have a weapon. But what they have? They had their God. And they were coming out of Egypt and they stood. And maybe it's like you this morning. You know, you're standing at your Red Sea. You can't go forward. You turn around and the enemy's coming fast on your heels. You can't go back. You can't go right. You can't go left. You can't go up. You can't go down. It seems impossible. But God says, you know what? I'm going to make a way for you. And God came, says there that he came, and there he remained. Not so much as one of them was left when the whole thing was over. God watches out for his own people. God shook the earth, and you know what? He's going to shake it again. I don't care what your circumstances are. I know that God knows exactly what they are. Don't be overwhelmed by them. Because the Bible promises that we're going to, in the end times, suffer for Christ. And I don't even think we've scraped the surface of suffering for Christ yet especially in this nation. Secondly, there was also going to be a smashing of the kingdoms. You read about the overthrow of the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you look at the, the chariots that were overthrown by those who rode in them, the riders that say shall come down and every one will be destroyed. By what? How are they going to be destroyed? By the sword of his brother. Do you know what God did throughout the Old Testament when you read the Old Testament books and there's a lot of wars and a lot of different things going on? I mean, this is just God being supernatural God. Here's a lesson. The people in the armies of Judah and Israel, they didn't stand back on the sidelines and ask God, you know what, come in and take care of this enemy for us, please. We don't want to get our hands dirty. We're just going to sit back and watch our supernatural God do what he does best. No, you know what? They had to lift up their sword. They had to lift up their armor. They had to lift up their shield. And they had to start to run. They had to flex their muscles. They had to breathe and fight. They had to have energy. And they had to put everything they had into the battle. And when they did that, and at the same time, they're trusting God to do what he's promised to do because they had a supernatural God. And that's what we have to do today, beloved. We can't just sit back and allow our circumstances to take over in our lives or in God's work. And hope that somehow the Lord is just going to make everything all right. Supernaturally, while we sleep. If we're not prepared to do what we can do, then God will not do what he can do. I really believe that. In the Old Testament, God used to come into the battles. And do you know what he used to do? He would confound the enemy. Every time. He confused their enemies. So much in verse 22, it says that each brother, the enemy, turned against themselves. And they began to kill each other. And then the Judeans, the Israelites, they would have the victory, not by their own hand, but by God's supernatural hand. But let me tell you this morning, if we're going to have victory in the work of God, or the victory of faith in our own lives even, it's not going to be by our own hand. We're going to have to trust God. Even when we look into the Word of God and you see that God has been reminding us, you'll never do anything by your own hand. That's why, unfortunately, you know what? Some of these modern-day churches with all their creativity and all their market-driven, purpose-driven stuff and all that stuff, I think it's all going to burn up. I really do. Because it's generated by somebody's hand. It's somebody's creative venture that's doing these things. So you've got to put everything that you've got into the work of God and at the end of the day, trust Him to do what is going to be victorious. We can't just sit back 
expect God to work. That's what the Word of God teaches us. There's going to come a, a day when we see the Word of God, we see it testified to this. You can read about it in Ezekiel. And just like in the story of Gideon and the, the Midianites when they were all confounded and judges, you, you know about that little story. And they turned upon one another and they killed each other. That's going to happen in the future. When the nations are surrounding Israel, the Bible says God will come in and confound them. And it's going to look like Israel doesn't have a prayer in the world. But let's personalize this. What are the enemies in your own life? Is it that besetting sin that just won't go away? Maybe it's illness. Maybe it's poverty. Maybe it's discouragement. Maybe it's sorrow. Whatever it may be, they're all our enemies. Some of them we brought upon ourselves. Some of them we could have never brought upon ourselves. But no matter what they are, the secret is this. If we surrender all that we have to God in the battle, he will perform the victory. I pray that you believe that this morning. Because if you don't believe it, you'll never have a victory. There's going to be a day coming, and we read about it in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. It tells us on a wider scale that God is going to smash man's kingdoms. It says, and in the days of these kings, in verse 44 of Daniel 2, these kings shall the God of heaven set upon a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. You know, history tells us that most, most uh, nations in the world have a history. Statistics say they last, empires and stuff, 250, 300 years, the average. But it's interesting that this kingdom, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, is going to be an eternal kingdom. He will establish his kingdom and his kingdom and his government and his rule and there's not going to be any end to it. I mean, talk about being on the winning side. He's going to establish that kingdom. You read about it in Psalm 2. It says, why do the heathens rage? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? In verse 1, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. He's going to merely laugh at their efforts. See, today, people laugh at the church. People laugh at Christians. But you know what? There's going to come a day when he will laugh at them. It says, the Lord shall have them in derision. In other words, he's going to confuse them. They shall he speak, then shall he speak unto them his wrath and vex them in his displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon the holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day I have begotten thee, ask of me, and I shall give you the heathen of your inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. See, there's a day coming, beloved. You have to understand this. There's a day coming when it says every knee will bow. It doesn't matter what religion you are. It doesn't matter what God you've bowed down to before. It, none of that matters. The day's going to come when you're going to bow down to the Lord. And you're going to worship Him. At that point, that future point in history, if you're not saved, it's too late. But you know what? Even though you're not saved, you're, it says your tongue will still confess that He's, he's Lord for the glory of God the Father. And Jesus is going to reign. See, there's going to be a king of kings who comes and sets up his rule. You think about some of these countries who are overthrowing their governments, and you see the absence of any rule after the government is overthrown, and it's, it's pure chaos until a government rises up and takes control once again. That's what's happening in our world. They've taken the king of kings, and they basically booted him. And there's no one in, in charge other than the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. Maybe you're here this morning and you can feel the absence of Christ in your own life. You can cry out to him this morning and know 
for certain that he will answer that prayer and he will save you when you come to him in true repentance and desperate need. Thirdly, he wanted to encourage Zerubbabel here in the third message that was given by Haggai to this servant, basically that he wanted him to know that he provided a servant, servant of Jehovah. Look at verse 23. It says, On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now notice it says this day, on that day, what the Holy Spirit is speaking of here is a future day. God is telling them of a time to come. It didn't happen in their history. It didn't happen immediately. It was a future day that the Bible describes, that all the prophets describe. A day when Christ would reign with his royal authority upon the earth. Now the question is simply this, why does God address Zerubbabel? And why indeed does God refer to Zerubbabel? I mean, if it's, not, if it's got nothing to do specifically with him, if it's something that's future, because, I mean, he would have died long after this would come to pass. So how could God be saying to him, I'll take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetiel, saith the Lord, and make him the, a signet. It's important that we understand this. I want you to look at chapter 1 once again in verse 1 and look at what it says. In the first instance that we find Zerubbabel, we see that the message came on the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord, the Haggai, the prophet, unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, governor of Judah. Judah. What's he called there? He's called what? The governor of Judah, right? Go to verse uh, 14. You remember, they're all stirred and they're all moved by the word of God. What's he called there? Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, what? Governor of Judah. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. Once again, governor of Judah. Chapter 2, verse 21. We've already read that. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. But look at what he's called in verse 25. Interesting. Oh, Zerubbabel, not governor of Judah, but what? My servant. Why the change? Why the change? If you look throughout the Old Testament, you'll find this. God says, my servant David. Have you ever noticed that? And then he says, my servant Israel. Not the person, but the nation. My servant Israel. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 52 quickly. Isaiah 52 And look at what it says here in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see. In that which they have not heard, they understand. See, anyone that's called the servant of God within the word of God is a, you have to understand this, is a picture or a type, you might say, of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the Messiah of God. The Christ of God is the servant of God. That's what the, the book of Isaiah shows us clearly over and over again. The suffering servant, the suffering Christ is our Savior and our Lord. Well, what does he say? Back to Haggai, he says, Zerubbabel, my servant. And you say, well, does that mean he's referring to Christ? Well, in Matthew, and this is kind of interesting, Matthew chapter 1, verse 12, where we have all the genealogy going on there. Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. And you have to note here, Elijah is called in the New Testament, Elias, because it's a, it's a, it's a Greek transliteration, so depending on what version you have or whatever. Um, but look at verse 12 with me. It says, and after the... The deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shetiel, 
and Shetiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Ibuhud, and Ibuhud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Hmm. Now if you look back at Haggai, chapter 2, verse 23, it says, In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take you, O Zerubbabel my servant. Not Zerubbabel the governor, but Zerubbabel my servant, the son of Shetiel, says the Lord. What the Holy Spirit here is trying to get across to us is not a personal fulfillment to Zerubbabel, but really, you might say, a positional fulfillment in his line. He's in Christ's lineage. Zerubbabel was the son of David. Not a direct son, but he was in the line of David. And you know as well as I do that the Messiah came out of the line of David. Therefore, the Messiah came in the line of Zerubbabel. And so what God is saying is, you know what? Look, O Judah, one day I'm going to bring out of Zerubbabel's loins, humanly speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Deliverer, my suffering servant. I mean, it's incredible how the Word of God ties all this together. It fits together beautifully. If you look at Luke chapter 1, it says, And behold, in verse uh, 31 there, it says, And behold, you shall consume, consume in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall be called, his name shall be called Jesus. He shall be great, and his shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. He wants to encourage Zerubbabel. He wants him to understand that one day he's going to shake the earth like it's never been shaken. He's going to smash all the enemies and all the kingdoms. And you know what? He's going to provide a servant, Jehovah, even through his line. And then the last thing quickly is this fourth little message of encouragement speaks of a signet of God's choosing in verse 23. It says, I will make you as a signet for I have chosen you, says the Lord. What's a signet? It's a signet ring. If you look in the Old Testament, you find it's used in three different ways. First of all, it's used as a personal signature of a person, a stamp for their name. You know, some of you have those little stamps, you know, and you have your name and your address on it. And you just have to stamp it in the return thing and you don't have to write anything out. Well, that's kind of what it, what it was. It verified that that came from who it came from. Secondly, you find that it was something that was used in the palace and in the courts to validate royal authority within a sealed document. And also, thirdly, it was used as a guarantee to fulfill a future promise that had been written. But here's the key. The signet always represented the owner. It always represented the owner. Well, who's talking about a signet here? Who's actually bringing this message through Haggai? It's God. And God is saying, I'm going to make you Zerubbabel, not you Zerubbabel, but your seed. My servant's going to be my signet, and he's going to be my personal stamp, the express image of my person, and he's going to seal everything, and everything in him will come together. Princes would sign their edict and stamp it, great commissions with their their signet, but Christ, the Son of God, in his own indelible ink of his own blood, signed the great charter of eternal salvation and the gospel for us all. And everything is secured in that signet that he signed. Every man that was given authority or responsibility throughout the history of the world, eventually they mess up. There was Noah. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Got on the ark. Thought everything was fine. As soon as he gets off, what's he do? He goes and gets drunk. You have David, a man after God's own heart. What'd he do? He's found in bed with a married woman then murdered her husband. Adam, even the father of our beginning, what did he do? He was made responsible over the whole universe and he couldn't handle it. And we, we can go over and over and over this. But the point is, is that he wanted to encourage Zerubbabel that no matter what is going to happen, I am still God and I will take care of these things. God will deliver you. God will save you. 
I pray that we believe that truth today. Winston Churchill said one thing we have learned from history is that we don't learn from history. That's right, isn't it? I hope in these past weeks as we've kind of weaved our way through the book of Haggai that you've learned one thing. That as a follower of the Most High God, if you give your all to Christ, if you give your all to what He's called you to do, no matter what it is, He will give all that He has back to you. Well, it is our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. We trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. If you'd like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. This is our phone number, 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. Or you can visit us on the web at gracefultruth.org. We've got a lot of resource materials available there, more information about who we are. And if you need a map to visit us at Grace Bible Church, that's there as well. Again, gracefultruth.org. And would you please drop us an email? Let us know you paid us a visit when you stop by. Again, gracefultruth.org. Or give us a call at 650-366-9923. Again, that's 650-366-9923. We thank you for joining us today and trust we'll see you again next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth. Graceful Truth.